Well, good morning. My name is Adam, if we haven't had the chance to meet, and it's uh, wonderful to be together today and to look at this really, really amazing passage of Scripture. Now, before we uh, dive into that, I want to share with you, and I've shared this with you before, one of my favorite lines from any book I've ever read outside the Bible comes from the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, and particularly uh, the first book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, if you're not familiar with the series, it's a, a fantasy series set in the fictional land of Narnia. And the king of Narnia, the, the Christ figure, the, the figure who represents Jesus in this series, is a lion named Aslan. And there's a scene in this book where two of the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, are explaining uh, Aslan, describing him to two young girls named Susan and Lucy. And this is how it goes. Lucy asks about Aslan. Is he a man? Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Now we're starting a, a brand new sermon series today called A Light Has Dawned. We're spending the next eight weeks in the lead up to Christmas, and yes, Christmas is seven or eight weeks away, so maybe start your shopping if you haven't. We're spending the seven or eight weeks in the lead up to Christmas exploring the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Now, if you're new or newish to the Bible, the Bible is one unified story divided into two parts. The Old Testament is written before Jesus. The New Testament is written after Jesus. But both the Old Testament and the New Testament are about Jesus. The Old Testament predicts and points to and prophesies the coming of Jesus, and then the New Testament tells us about the coming of Jesus and his earliest followers. Now, Isaiah is part of the Old Testament, the part that was written before Jesus came. Isaiah was actually written 700 years before Jesus arrived. And yet the book of Isaiah points to and prophesies and predicts Jesus in some really powerful and profound ways. In fact, you might not know this, but Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel. The, the first four gospels, of course, are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. But Isaiah is called the fifth gospel because it points to Jesus so often and so overtly. In fact, here's what um, our blurb says uh, about this series. Because what we're doing in this series is we're exploring some of the main prophecies, the main predictions, the main pointers to Jesus. Here's what the blurb says. It says, the book of Isaiah is a lot like Mount Everest. It's big, daunting, and a little dangerous. But the view is magnificent. 
Indeed, Isaiah is the greatest of Old Testament prophets and is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book apart from Psalms. It was written 700 years before Jesus, but is full of prophecies about him. To prepare our hearts for Christmas, we will scale the peak of Isaiah together to explore these prophecies and behold the magnificent view of our glorious Saviour. That's what we're doing in the coming weeks because this is what Isaiah gives us. It gives us a magnificent view of our glorious God. A God who is undoubtedly good, but not safe. A God that we cannot manipulate or control, but a God who confronts, corrects, and comforts us. And this is why we're studying Isaiah, because it gives us a vision of God. Not what we would like him to be, but as he actually is. And this is what we truly need. See, today there are all kinds of different views about God. For example, there's the idea uh, that God is kind of like a divine butler. That he exists mainly to give good things to us. To provide for us what we want when we want it. Others think about God as kind of like a life coach. He exists to help us maximize our potential, to reach our goals, to fulfill our dreams and our destiny. Others think about God kind of like as a big grandfather in the sky. He's a God who demands nothing from us and just approves and accepts everything about us. There's all kinds of distorted views about God today, but Isaiah is going to help us see through the fog. It's going to help us to see clearly, to see a God that we can trust, but that we cannot control. A God who is good, but not safe. And so wherever you are on the journey of faith, Isaiah has an important message for every single one of us. I mean, if you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to hear what Isaiah says about God. It might be confronting at times, maybe even confusing, but I think if you'll stick around, you will find it to be compelling. If you're a Christian, then Isaiah is going to bolster your confidence in God. It's going to give you a bigger vision of God, and I hope and pray a deeper trust in God. Now, we're not going to be looking at the whole book of Isaiah in this series. After all, there's 66 chapters. We'd be here till next Christmas. But I would encourage you to read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, if you've never read it, it is, in my opinion, one of the greatest books of the Bible. Alec Mocher is a a renowned Old Testament scholar. He says that Isaiah is the crown of the Old Testament. Now, this doesn't mean that it's easy or simple. I mean, it's not. It's long. It covers a long period of time. It has a lot of different names. But it will reward your careful attention. And this is also why I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Growth Group Guide. I don't have one up here with me, but it's purple. You can grab one from the Connection Center. It has a lot of good background information and context on the book of Isaiah. It will help you to get your bearings in this magnificent book. Now, Isaiah himself actually gives us an introduction to this book right up front in the very first verse. He answers three important questions about this important book. What who and when. What is it, who wrote it, and when did they write it? Here's how the book of Isaiah begins, and he he tells us what it is. Verse one, the vision 
concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So the book of Isaiah is a prophetic vision. It's a message from God through his prophet to his people. A message from God through his prophet, his spokesperson, to his people. This explains the reference to Judah and Jerusalem, which is a reference to the people of God. You see, at this point in the story, God's people, the nation of Israel, they had split into two kingdoms. You had Israel in the north, where the capital city was Samaria. And I've left my little pointer down there along with my growth group guide, but hopefully you can see where Israel is kind of right in the middle of the map and Samaria just above it. And then down below at the bottom of the map in the south, you have the kingdom of Judah. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem. Now, though Isaiah will also speak to Israel in the north, he is mainly going to speak to Judah in the south. He's mainly going to minister in and around Jerusalem. And he ministered in this area during a time of upheaval. You see, Israel and Judah had enjoyed a long period of peace and prosperity, but there was a looming threat in the north. The Assyrian Empire, which you can kind of see there at the top of the map, they were beginning to grow. They were beginning to become stronger and they were beginning to become belligerent. And it seems as though the glory days of Israel and Judah are numbered. And so it's into this context that Isaiah begins to speak. And he actually speaks for quite a long time. Isaiah ministered for almost 60 years, from 740 BC to around 680 BC. That's a long period of speaking to God's people. And so what we have here in Isaiah, though it's described as the vision, singular, what we have in the book of Isaiah is not a singular vision given at a single point in time. Isaiah didn't kind of go into a trance and just imagine this whole book in one sitting. What we have is a collection and a summary of his ministry and his message. It's likely that at some point towards the end of his life, Isaiah sat down, he gathered his notes, he gathered his messages, he he recalled his memories, and he put together this coherent presentation of his career and his ministry. Now, it's not always in chronological order, but it is one single compelling vision. It's a message from God through his prophet to his people. Now, what do we know about Isaiah himself? Who was he? Well, all we're told here in verse one is this, that he was Isaiah, son of Amos. That's all we're told here. Now, there's a tradition that suggests Amos, Isaiah's father, was brother of King Amaziah, which means Isaiah may have been royalty. He was almost certainly well-educated. I mean, his book is a literary and theological masterpiece. What we do know for sure is that Isaiah was married and he had two sons. We discover that in chapter eight. And we also know that he was a prophet. He was a messenger to God's people. Now that begs the question, what was his message for God's people? What did Isaiah have to say to the people of God? Well, it's actually summarized by his name. You see, the name Isaiah means the Lord saves. If you remember nothing else about Isaiah, if you've already forgotten everything I've told you about the book of Isaiah, remember this. The message of Isaiah is God saves sinners. That's the message. 
And this is a message that's important not only for God's people 3,000 years ago, but this is a message that's important for you and I today and every day. It's the most important message in the world, and this is what we're diving into in these next few weeks. And today we're going to begin by looking at chapter 1, that passage we read just a moment ago. Now you might be thinking, if Isaiah's message is God saves sinners, then he sure has a funny way of putting it. Because maybe, as you were listening to that reading a moment ago, you were thinking, why does God speak this way? Why does he speak so strongly and starkly? The title of today's sermon is actually A Dark Beginning. Because that's just what that is. It is. It's, It's a dark and difficult passage. But there's a good reason for this. You see, chapter one of Isaiah is a little bit like an MRI scan of God's people. Do you know what an MRI scan does? It takes a picture of inside the body. It tells you what's happening beneath the surface. And usually, if you get an MRI and there's a problem, the results will come with all kinds of strong and scary words. Words like tumor or brain injury or stroke. Words that some of us have heard before. And the reason the doctor shares these words with you is not because they don't like you or because they're being mean to you. The reason is because they want to help you find a solution. They want to be honest with you about what's going on. And you see, this is what God is doing for his people here in chapter one. God has performed an MRI on them and the results are not pretty. But rather than just kind of gloss over it, rather than ignore it, God is honest with his people not because he doesn't like them, not because he's being mean with them, but because he loves them and he's being honest with them. He wants them to know their problems so they can find a solution. See, the only way we know that we need to take a step back to God is to realize that we've taken a step away from God. And see, God is showing his people here how far they have wandered away from him. And you know, you, you and I need the same thing as well. We need sometimes to to get a sense of our sinfulness. We need an an accurate view of ourselves. Now, I shared this in the the 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. services last week, but but not in the the 8 a.m. Apparently, there's this thing called the better than average syndrome. It's where we consider ourselves to be better than average in most things. So, for example, apparently 98% of people in the United Kingdom think that they are have an above average IQ. 95% of people in the United Kingdom think that they have above average looks. And apparently 93% of people think that they're in the top 50% of nicest people in the UK. Now I don't have the stats for Australia, but I hate to break it to you, if it's similar, then that means almost 50% of us are dumber, nastier and uglier than we think. See, we need an accurate view of ourselves, don't we? And this is what God is giving to his people and to us today in Isaiah chapter one. God is lovingly confronting us with the truth about us. God is lovingly convicting us of our sin. And I just love what Ray Ortland says about the conviction of sin. It's a longish quote, but it's just so incredible what he says. Listen carefully. He says, what is conviction of sin? 
It is not an oppressive spirit of uncertainty or paralyzing guilt feelings. I'm sure you you know what that feels like. He says, conviction of sin is the lance of the divine surgeon piercing the infected soul, releasing the pressure, letting the infection pour out. Conviction of sin is a health-giving injury. Conviction of sin is the Holy Spirit being kind to us by confronting us with the light we don't want to see and the truth we're afraid to admit and the guilt we prefer to ignore. Conviction of sin is the severe love of God overruling our compulsive dishonesty, our willful blindness, our favorite excuses. Conviction of sin is the violent sweetness of God opposing the sins lying comfortably undisturbed in our lives. Conviction of sin is the merciful God declaring war on the false peace we settle for. Conviction of sin is our escape from malaise to joy, from attending church to worship, from faking it to authenticity. Conviction of sin with the forgiveness of Jesus pouring over our wounds is life. It's beautiful and it's amazing and it's true. And this is God's message to his people in chapter one. And this message that he gives to his people, it comes in three main ways. He has three main things that he wants to say to his people back then and to us today. The first thing that God says to his people is this, I'm heartbroken by your rebellion. I'm heartbroken by your rebellion. You see, though I've compared this chapter to an MRI scan, the way that God delivers the diagnosis, it's not actually like a doctor to a sick patient. It's more like a father to his wayward children. Look at what he says there in verse two. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, every parent knows the the love they have for their child. From the moment you hold them in the hospital, I mean, you're prepared to do anything for them, to raise them, to, to care for them, to protect them, to make sacrifices for them, to give up your weekend sleep in, to give up the idea of ever having a clean car again, to give up your golf career, to even give up your sanity on some days. Or maybe I'm just sharing from my own personal experience here. I mean, you make all kinds of sacrifices for your children, but you do it because you love them. And it's the same for God in Israel. God loves his children. He's chosen them. He's rescued them. He's raised them. He's protected them. He's cared for them. He's done everything for them, but they've turned their backs on him. They've rebelled against him. And I think some of you know this deep pain to have a child turn their back on you. Or maybe you've been the one to turn away. It's a heartbreaking situation. And this is the situation in Isaiah chapter one. God's children have rebelled against him and God grieves over what they've become. See, like the, the prodigal son in Luke 15, they've run away from home, they've chased after other things and they've ended up in a spiritual pigsty. And God grieves over what they've become. In fact, Isaiah describes their their pitiable state using three different images. Firstly, he says that they've become dumber than farm animals. Look at verse verse three. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel, the people of God, does not know. 
My people do not understand. Now, oxen and donkey aren't the most glorious animals, are they? I mean, the new NRL team that's just entered in, it's not the donkeys, it's the dolphins, because the donkeys are just not that majestic. But even donkeys and oxen know enough to go to their master, to go home. After all, he's the one that feeds them. But God's people have become so disoriented, so lost, they've turned to everything and everyone other than God. As I was saying, they're dumber than farm animals. Secondly, he says, they are like a man who's been beaten up, but can't feel his wounds and won't get any help. Look at verse six. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Isaiah is saying, you don't even realize that things could be so much better. You're hurting, but you won't turn to the healer. Thirdly, he says that they are like a broken down city. Verse seven, your country is desolate. Your city's burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. You've been overrun, you've been overcome. Isaiah is saying the people of God are in a terrible state. They're dumb, they're beaten up, and they're broken down. Now, what has led them to this point? Why have they found themselves in this situation? The answer is verse four. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. The reason they've ended up in the spiritual pigsty is because they've turned their backs on God. They've turned their backs on him. They've abandoned his teaching. They've walked away from his light. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they've become atheists instead of believers. It's more subtle than that. It means that they have downgraded God. They've treated him as a last resort rather than as their foundation. They've put a discount on God and they've put a higher value on other things. They've treated God as secondary and other things as primary. And this has led them into the spiritual pigsty and God grieves over what they've become. And this gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. He is not a distant God that is unmoved by our rebellion. I mean, when we wander away from him, he doesn't just kind of shrug his shoulders. His heart breaks. He cares deeply. And I wonder if there's distance in your relationship with God. I wonder if you've downgraded God in your life, treated him as a secondary and unimportant treated him as a last resort rather than as your foundation. If you have, I don't think it's an accident that you're here today. And consider this your invitation from God to come home to the one who feeds you, heals you, and restores you. And just like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, he is waiting with open arms. Not with a lecture, but with an embrace. The first thing God says to his people is, I'm heartbroken by your rebellion. The second thing he says is this, I'm fed up with your hypocrisy. So you might think that after this description of God's people, they've forsaken him, they've turned their backs on him, they've rebelled against him. You probably think, well, they've stopped worshiping. They've stopped going to church. 
They've stopped praying. They've stopped singing songs. They've stopped reading scripture. But apparently that wasn't the case. See, these people in Isaiah's day, they hadn't stopped going to church. In fact, according to verses 11 to 14, they were very religious. They made sacrifices, they brought offerings, they burned incense, they held services, and guess what? God hated it. Listen to verse 13. God says to them, stop bringing meaningless offerings. He says, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Verse 14, your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, have you ever heard God talk like this? I mean, what's going on here? This is, to be frank, shocking. I mean, surely if the problem is that they have turned their backs on God, then the solution is to go to church, to worship God, to offer sacrifices, to pray prayers. I mean, after all, you might be thinking, isn't this what God asked for? I mean, wasn't God the one that instituted the sacrificial system? Aren't they just doing what Leviticus asked them to do? Why is God so upset about all of this? The answer comes in verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Why? Your hands are full of blood. See, the issue is not the services or the sacrifices or prayer. The issue is not worship itself. The issue is the lives and the attitude of the worshipers. See, the people in Isaiah's day, they would come to worship, they'd lift their hands, they'd pray their prayers, they'd bring their sacrifices, they'd go through all the rituals and ceremonies. And then they would leave and live however they wanted. The issue was religion without relationship. It was ritual without repentance. And this manifested itself, revealed itself mainly in the way that they treated other people. Look at what Isaiah goes on to say in verse 16. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. See, the heart of the problem was that they thought they could love God without loving people. They thought they could attend worship services but not pursue justice. And friends, there is such an important lesson here for you and I. God wants more from us than just to attend services and listen to sermons. Now, are they good? Are they even essential for us to do? Yes. But are they, are they the only things that we should be doing? No. God wants those services and those sermons to be part of a life that is committed to God. God doesn't want us just to attend church. He wants us to live lives of, of obedience and justice. You know, just a few weeks ago, we had Justice Sunday, where we looked at some of the initiatives as a church that we're participating in to pursue justice. And I give thanks to God for those initiatives and those efforts that we want to be a church that is about life for others. But the question this morning is, what about you? What about me? Are we loving God and loving people? Are we attending services and pursuing justice? 
Where that isn't the case for us, we need to repent. This is what God wants for his people. He wants wholehearted devotion. And this is why he says here in, in chapter one of Isaiah, he says, I'm heartbroken by your rebellion. I'm fed up with your hypocrisy. But thankfully, that's not all that God has to say to them. Because remember, God is honest with us about us, not to condemn us, but to save us. To put it another way, when God cuts us, he does so like a surgeon, to heal us. And we see this is true even in the darkness of chapter one because God also says to his people, thirdly and finally, I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you. You see, right in the middle of this dark diagnosis, God offers the most amazing invitation. This is what he says, verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. See, God doesn't say to them and God doesn't say to you, you're beyond help. But God says, come, let's talk this over. Here's my offer to you. Here's my invitation to you. Though your sins are like scarlet, though you have blood on your hands, though you have done wrong, if you will turn to me, you will find that there is a covering for them. They shall be as white as snow. See, like a blanket of snow that descends on a grimy city street, God's purity can be laid over our grimy lives. I mean, I wonder if you've ever felt dirty, grimy, ashamed. God's offer to you is turn to me and I will cleanse you and cover you completely. And the truth is, all of us need this covering, but the question is, how do we get it? You know, later in Isaiah, we read these incredible words about this mysterious servant figure. It's what we read in chapter 61. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. You know, 700 plus years later, Jesus showed up and he said in Luke 4 that these words are about him. That he is the one that has pristine clothing. He is the one that has garments of salvation. He is arrayed in a robe of righteousness. He is the only one that is able to stand whole and holy before God. But this covering is not simply for himself because this is also something Jesus gives to his people. See, those who trust him are covered in his purity. Those who come to him are robed in his righteousness. And that's why at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, this vision of what will happen on that final day when Jesus returns to make all things new, we see the church, the people of God, they're described in this way, as a bride, beautifully dressed, for her husband. And so do you ever feel grimy, dirty, ashamed? How do you remove that stain of guilt? How do you find covering? Jesus says to you this morning, come to me.
bring to me everything about yourself, everything you've ever done. And I will put on you a robe of my righteousness. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we want to take just a moment right now to come before you in honesty and to bring our whole selves to you. And Lord, for those of us in here that have never come to Christ, never put ourselves into his good hands, never asked for his covering, that I want to invite those of us who are in that place right now to, to turn to Jesus to turn from our sin and to put our whole self into his good hands. Lord, for those of us that have fallen into hypocrisy, we've drifted from you and we know it. We have religion but no relationship. We've downgraded you in our lives, God. We've treated you as secondary and not primary. And I want to invite those of us to repent and to return to you today with all of our hearts. It's madness to turn anywhere else because there's no one else, there's nothing else that can give us what we're looking for. It's only found in you, the God who made us, the God who heals us, the God who loves us, and the God who restores us. And so like the prodigal son, Lord, we want to run home to you today safe and secure in the knowledge that you wait for us with open arms. And so wherever you are, you just take a few moments now to bring yourself, to bring your heart to our great God in heaven. Father, thank you that though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.